go ahead and give our attention to God's Word this morning as we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at 1 through 21, so the entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, page 953 of the ESD Pew Bibles, if you're using one of those. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 21. Let's go to the Lord prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to, first of all, understand this passage. Please show us the true meaning of your word. We want to, to understand the meaning of it as originally written to the original hearers. We want to see it in context. We want to see how it fits in with the rest of the book and with the rest of Scripture. And Father, also we ask that you would penetrate our hearts. Uh, we freely acknowledge that without the power of the Holy Spirit, our hearts are, are naturally darkened. We need your power. We need uh, your Spirit to help us understand the things of God. So Father, open our eyes to see the things that you want to teach us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a college freshman who was extremely gifted musically. He had learned to play the piano at a young age and had practiced and, and played all his life. And he was arriving on campus and he was supposed to meet with a couple of senior music majors who were going to evaluate his skills and make a student recommendation for a, a music performance club that um, usually opened a few doors. If you got into this club, it was rather elite. It, it could lead to some possible scholarships and some other opportunities. So it was kind of a big deal. And he arrived on campus and he was able to find the fine arts building because the campus had a map. And so he walked into the building, but it was a huge multi-level sprawling building on campus. And he walked in and he really didn't know where he was supposed to go. He knew he was supposed to be in practice room 31, but he didn't know where that was. And so he thought, well, I can hunt and try to find it on my own, but I don't have a whole lot of time. So he finally got up the nerve, and he, he saw somebody walking by, and he said, hey, excuse me, can you tell me how to get to practice room 31? And the girl answered and said, sure, yeah. Um, do you know where the faculty offices are? He said, no, I don't. I don't know. She said, well, do you know where the recital hall is? And he said, no, I, this is, I've never been in this building. And she went, oh, okay. Um... Hold on a second. Well, if you... Um, and then she said, you know what? I think it's easier if I just show you. All right? So just, just follow me. And she took off down the hall, and he, he followed her down the hall, a couple of different turns down the stairwell to the lower level, down another hall, through an open area, through... Finally, after several minutes, she pointed, and she said, the practice rooms are down there. And he walked down and found number 31. And sure enough, there were the two seniors who greeted him and said, you're just on time, let's get started. I think we've all been there at some point. We've, we've all been in that situation where it's just easier if, if we show someone, rather than try to describe it or, or explain it or um, talk them through a process or, or, or take them to, to where they're supposed to go by, by directions, it's just sometimes easier to show them. It's just easier to show them. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is wrapping up his teaching and instruction to these raw believers in Corinth on 
getting rid of worldliness. Remember, he has been teaching on this since chapter 1. He has devoted over 25% of 1 Corinthians to this teaching on getting rid of worldliness. So after all this teaching, after everything that Paul's laid out, after everything he said about it's, it's the message, not the messenger, it's, it's this message, not any other message, it's, it's the Spirit of God revealing himself to people, it's, it's God judging his servants at the right time, after all that instruction that we've covered, finally at the end, Paul basically says, you know what? It's just easier if I show you. And so he places himself on display to show the raw believers in Corinth what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ, what the way of Jesus looks like without worldliness. In fact, at one point in this passage, you're going to hear him. He says, be imitators of me. That's another way of him saying, let me just show you what this looks like. I'll take you to practice room 31. I I will show me, if you follow me, I will show you what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus. So so be on the lookout for that. Try to hear Paul showing them as we read chapter 4. He says, This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And what that you did bring, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still are, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some 
are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? So before Paul shows them what it looks like to walk in the way of Jesus, he does have a couple of concluding remarks about himself and and the other teachers. And so he begins chapter 4, he says, this is how one should regard us. And the us right there is the same group, you guessed it, that he has been referring to for the last four, three chapters prior to this one. It's Paul, Apollos, Peter, these other teacher leaders of the church who had spent some time teaching and leading the church in Corinth. So that's who the us is. And he says, this is how you should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So let's let's break that down. Servants. This is not the traditional word for servants. If you've been in Christian circles and listened to faithful preaching for very long, then you know that there's a word that is translated as servant, it's diakonos in the, in the Greek. It also is translated as deacon, and the context depends on how that's translated. It can be translated as deacon, or it can be translated as servant. That's not the word he uses here. He uses a different word here, and it's a word that literally means to row under. To row under. Or an under or a lower oarsman. And the picture is taken from those that are on a ship, usually uh, maybe even a war galley, who are below decks, and they're assigned a, a spot next to an oar, and their job is to receive orders and row. And uh, if you remember the, the 1959 uh, Charlton Heston and Ben Hur movie, okay, that they're, they're, they were chained to the ship which provided a little motivation to row well, because if the ship went down, they went down with it. So they were very motivated to row well and row to their best ability. But they were under strict orders from a direct supervisor. There was somebody over them giving them orders, and whatever they said, the oarsman or the under oarsman or the lower oarsman obeyed. So that's the first word that Paul uses, as servant. The second one is stewards... And the word translated as steward means household manager or estate manager. So this is someone who is managing an estate. They're given responsibility. and They're given responsibility and authority on behalf of the master or the owner of the estate. And this can include broad powers, purchasing, um, selling, debt collection, Uh, general management of of property, general management of other servants that might be a part of the state. They they, they manage them and assign duties to them. In fact, we've got an excerpt from an ancient uh, document describing the instructions from an owner-master of the estate to the steward, and it says this, quote, I have empowered you by this document to administer my estate and to collect the rents and, if need be, to arrange new leases or to cultivate some land yourself, and to give receipts in my name, and to transact any business connected with stewardship, just as I can transact it when I am present, and I confirm whatever you decide about them. So you can hear that language. This is, this is where a master of the estate says, you're in charge. I don't have to check up on you from day to day. I'm going to leave, 
and, and you're running things while I'm gone. So if we combine these two together, look what we've got. We've got servant, steward. We've got lower oarsman, who is under direct orders and has unquestionable loyalty to, to the one issuing those direct orders. And we have one who's been given responsibility by the one giving those orders to act on their behalf and to manage their estate. What an incredible picture for apostles and for somebody like Paul. Unquestioning loyalty to his master Jesus Christ. There, there's no even possibility that he would even think about disobeying him. And at the same time, Jesus has entrusted him with managing his church, his estate. So that's the, the language that Paul uses. And he says, that's how I want you to regard us. Are these pastor teachers that includes all the people, the us, Paul, Apollos, Peter. All right, so what is this under oarsman stewarding? It says the mysteries of God. This would include the testimony of God from chapter 2-1. This would include secret and hidden, hidden wisdom of God from chapter 2-7. This would include the depths of God, chapter 2-10. Basically, everything we covered, when we went through chapter 2, we called it a package. Do you remember that? We said it's this, this overall comprehensive spiritual teaching from God, this package from God that has been once and for all delivered to apostles, prophets, teachers of the church, those, those first century, first generation people that God entrusted it to. And it really includes everything contained in the New Testament. If you remember from the beginning, we said the apostles filled that, that special role of being in between Jesus' incarnate ministry where he taught and laid everything out and the New Testament church where we have everything written down. Well, in between there, in between Jesus and having everything written down, we had the apostles. And they were the ones that, that allowed everything to be written down. They, they were the ones that the Holy Spirit worked through and gave us the New Testament and completed the canon. So this is what they've been entrusted with. This is Paul as the under oarsman steward has been given responsibility over is this package of spiritual truth from God. Everything we have in the New Testament, essentially. Gospel proclamation teaching, sound doctrine, application of sound doctrine, right administration of sacraments, modeling leadership, modeling and instructing on church discipline, all things Christ. And so Paul is saying in this opening chapter, this is how you should regard us, not as celebrities. Not as faction leaders. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. He says, no, not, not that. As this. And then in verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Jesus Christ requires faithfulness from his stewards. Faithfulness. Not worldly wisdom. Not powerful or persuasive speech, not noble birth, not strength, not wealth, not charismatic personality, not movie star good looks, not anything that the world places an emphasis on or values, but faithfulness. That's what the master of the estate is looking for. Verse 3 and 4, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. I do not even judge myself. Why? 
because God's judgment is the only judgment that matters. I mean, we, we covered this. Remember, look at chapter 3, 10 through 15. That's where we went into detail about God's going to take care of the judgment. God's going to be the one to assess the, the teacher leaders of the church. He'll do it in his timing. He does it perfectly. He's the only one qualified anyway. He'll take care of it. He will judge them. That's the only judgment that matters. Paul's saying, I don't even judge myself. He says, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Paul's saying, you know, as I review my ministry and what I've done in my service to Christ, I can't think of anything that stands out as unfaithful, but that doesn't mean I'm going to run out and give myself a perfect performance review because I don't have all the information. I'm not qualified to even judge myself like God can judge me. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. And then in verse 5, he says, therefore, meaning he's now going to state a conclusion based on everything he's just said. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. So he tells them, do not pronounce judgment before the time. Why? Because that's what they were doing. By, by looking at these teacher leaders and evaluating them with worldly criteria and then ranking them based on personal preference for what they like to get better than the other guy. He says, you're doing that. Don't do that. This is a commandment. Don't do that. Don't take it upon yourself to evaluate Paul, Paulus, and anyone else who functions in a similar manner in the church. Jesus will perform a thorough evaluation of his servant stewards thorough evaluation. You don't have to worry about it. Jesus will take care of that. Jesus will include even the purposes of the heart. Jesus will look at every single detail of that person's ministry and servant steward's service to the church. And he will evaluate them perfectly. So don't worry about that. And then he says that each one will receive his commendation from God. This is very similar to verse uh, 3.14. Very similar, same thing. Talking about receiving reward for faithfulness. Verse 6, are you hearing me? Uh, he says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. And when he says, I've applied all these things, he means um, all the teaching that has come in the first few chapters, but specifically the last little bit that he just covered. So faithfulness, the, the servant stewards, are evaluated on faithfulness, and uh, the judgment part. He said all that. He said, I, I showed you how that's applied to us, but I did it for your benefit, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. He's saying, I've applied all this teaching to myself, to Apollos, to Peter, to show you that if God's apostles and foundation layers are not above and beyond judgment, if they're not beyond um, demanding and expecting faithfulness, neither are you. Neither are you, you raw believers in Corinth. You're also expected to be found faithful. You are also going to receive an evaluation by your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And then in verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? In other words, how are you different from any other believer? Do you think you're really going to escape judgment and evaluation by Jesus? You're living before him. 
just as plainly as anyone else is living before him. What do you have that you did not receive? The answer is nothing. If then you received it, and they did, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? He's saying it's all grace. It's all grace. Why are you acting puffed up and, and arrogant? Why, why do you think you can sit in place of God and start judging and evaluating people? Why are you, why are you uh, going down this road at all? Uh, it's all grace. You have no reason to boast. You have no reason to, to disregard God's call to holiness and, and to embrace worldliness, which is what they were doing. Instead of faithfulness, Paul's seeing a prideful attitude. There's, there seems to be an inconsistency between who they are in Christ and their worldly, prideful behavior that, that they're demonstrating. And this explains why Paul seems to get a little wound up in the next couple of verses. Uh, if you look at verse 8, all these statements are sarcastic. You'll see the ESV punctuates these with an exclamation mark at the end. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. This is sarcasm. Paul is fake agreeing with their attitude. He's saying, oh yeah, no, you, you're, you've arrived. You guys are on top of the world. You have it all. Interesting that you're on top of the world and, and we're not, but regardless, uh, that's great. And look, you've done it all by yourselves with no help from anyone, not even God. Sarcasm. And then this last line where he says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the world with you. That, that's kind of like Paul saying, I wish that were true. I wish that you were kings and reigning. Then we could come over and benefit from your, your kingly having arrived rule and we could escape the, the reality of the type of life that we're living right now. I, I wish it were that easy to come over and find some relief from the life that he's going to detail starting in verse 9. He said, that'd be great. You guys had a place of refuge. Well, what's going on here? What, why is Paul so worked over, over all this? What, what makes him get agitated that results... He, he resorts to, to kind of this biting sarcasm as he addresses them in the church. I think the answer can be found by looking at Scripture. First of all, did that language sound familiar? That, that language about you have all you want, you have become rich? It should, because that's the same type of language that was addressed to the church in Laodicea in Revelation. Very similar language. Look at Revelation 3.17. It says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The church in Laodicea, remember, they were living this comfortable life in the world, and at the same time professing belief in Jesus Christ. They, they were living as if all that mattered was the here and now. Remember, they valued money, they valued material things. And, and Jesus speaks to that church and rebukes them. And here's a quote. We went through the book of Revelation, and I went back and looked. Here's the quote from, that, from those notes. The Laodiceans were professing Christians, but they looked just like the unbelievers around them. That's exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. They were professing Christians, but they were still worldly. They were still worldly. That's why Paul spends over 25% of this letter addressing worldliness. That was their main, their main issue. 
their, their worldliness. It was not... Their worldliness, uh, if you think about it like a wagon wheel and the center hub is the worldliness, very many spokes coming off of this. This was one spoke. This, this uh, assigning importance to some leaders over another and I follow Paul, I follow Paulus. That's not the only way that their worldliness uh, worked out in their lives. Um, I mean, just take a sneak peek. If you want to look down at the chapter heading of, of, of chapter 5, sexual immorality defiles the church. This is not the only issue. This I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. There are multiple issues, and they all stem from their worldliness. Part of the reason that they had not unlearned worldliness is because they didn't want to unlearn worldliness. They were thinking that their new life in Christ was compatible with worldliness. So as will become evident as we make our way through the rest of the book, um, they were not understanding that being in Christ meant following Christ in all areas of their, of their life and practice. They were in the understanding that, that well, I'm in Christ now, and, and Paul and our other teachers have been, have been hitting us pretty hard. You're in Christ. You have a new status. Okay, they're, they're buying and accepting that. Yeah, I have a new status in Christ, but they weren't making the connection that that means you now have to live out your faith in the real world. Which makes sense, right? We said at the beginning, they were raw. They were raw Christians. They have been immersed in this context and, the, and this culture of, a, of sexual, immoral, pagan idolatry from birth. Everybody around them was living like that. Their family members who haven't come to Christ yet, they were living like that. They had just become so comfortable with the world. And religion in the first century context of Corinth was not necessarily viewed as life-changing. It, it was viewed more kind of like um, wearing shoes. Okay? Like, like wearing shoes is today. Um, one person wears shoes with laces, one person wears a shoe with no laces. One person, wears black, one person wears black shoes, another person wears brown shoes. You wear leather shoes, I wear canvas shoes. It doesn't matter. It's a matter of personal style preference. You just wear shoes. It has no bearing on, on who you are or what kind of life you live. That's how first century Corinth viewed religion. There was, remember, a temple on every corner. It doesn't matter which god you worship. You worship that god, I worship this god. You worship those gods, I worship these gods. It's a matter of personal style and preference. It has no bearing on my life. I've, I've taken off these, these uh, pagan god shoes and I've, I've slipped into these Jesus shoes, but it doesn't mean I have to live any differently. I've just changed shoes. I've just changed religions. That was the understanding. That was the attitude. And Paul's getting to the, the bottom of that. 19 through 14. I'll just show you. This is, this is it. This is where Paul says, just easier if I, I take you right to room, room 31. When you, when you raw Christians finally do unlearn worldliness, you're going to have quite a different experience living out your faith in first century Corinth. So in verse 9, Paul presents himself and the other apostles as an example of what it looks like to cut themselves off from worldliness and follow Christ. And what we have is a catalog of hardships or a list of hardships 
that Paul and the other apostles have experienced, and he says, and are still experiencing. So let's, let's walk through these. Number one, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. So to understand this, you need to understand that in the first century and in ancient times before that, when a general went out into battle and engaged in a, a war or, or military campaign and was victorious, they would return home, back to their home city or the capital, and they would throw a parade, and it would be a victory parade. Ha ha, we won. And they would have the, the soldiers marching through in formation with all the armor and the weapons, and then they'd have any chariots or any horses if they had them, and they would be marching through as a parade. And then they would have the spoils of the war, so any uh, you know, chests of gold or, or shields of bronze or whatever they had captured, that was on display. And all this parade, celebration, at the very end of the parade, they would be dragging the captives that had been taken prisoner during the war, usually in chains. Sometimes with, they would actually hook them. They would take metal hooks and just hook it into the side of the captive and drag them along like that. And these captives were on display because this was the end for them. They would be executed by various means at the end of the parade. And so when these captives were were paraded through the city, the message was clear. The message was, you are the enemy. You have been defeated. You have no hope. And anybody watching the parade, by the time they got to the end, they would give this, you know, thinking along the lines of, uh, that really stinks to be you. Because they knew they're, they're on their way to death. Paul says, that's us in the world. We're on display. We are, we are the enemy. And we look defeated. It looks like our time is short. It looks like there is no hope for us. That's what it looks like to be paraded as men sentenced to death. And then verse 10, more sarcasm in the form of three contrasting statements. The apostles are fools. Corinthian believers, wise. Now, of course, remember, Paul doesn't really think they're wise. This is sarcasm again. Apostles weak. Corinthian believers, strong. Apostles in disrepute or dishonor. Corinthian believers, held in honor. Those who are truly wise, strong, and honored in Christ are going to appear weak, foolish, and be held in dishonor by the world. Verses 11 and 12, hunger, thirst, poorly dressed, buffeted, which means to strike or to hit with a blow, homeless, labor, working with their own hands, which you think, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't that a good trait? Isn't it good to work with your hands? It's not in the first century. When, when itinerant speakers, remember Paul was, was a preacher, a proclaimer of the gospel, but there were other professional orators who went around and traveled about and they made their living speaking professionally and entertaining people and, and providing lectures. There were four primary means of support. They could live with a wealthy patron who provided room and board. That was, that was the, the choice job, the choice way of supporting yourself. You could charge fees you could beg in the streets, or you could work. 
and working was the least preferable option because it carried the most social stigma. If you were a professional speaker and you had to work with your hands to support yourself, oh, well, you must not be legitimate. Why, why doesn't a patron offer their home to you? Or why, why can't you at least charge fees? Does nobody want to pay you? Are you really that bad? So Paul's working with his hands. Remember, he's a tent maker. He chose to be a tent maker in Corinth. Verses 12 and 13, Apostles' response is, When reviled or insulted, we bless. When persecuted, we endure, meaning not denying Jesus Christ. When slandered, a bad or evil report, we entreat, which means encourage. So they attempted to live peaceably with all people, even though they received poor treatment from others. He says, We have become, and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Scum, uh, translated as scum, can mean, or does mean something that is removed by cleaning. Something that you want to get off and, and scrub off. You don't want it anymore. Try to remove it. Refuse refers to the scrapings that are scrubbed off something, as in something scraped off the bottom of your shoes. So use your imagination on that one. The world considered the apostles utterly contemptible. They were, they were considered loathsome. Paul is saying, look, uh, I'll show you what it looks like to really live as a faithful servant steward and follower of Jesus Christ. Who has rejected the world? And this is what it looks like. If you reject the world, the world's going to reject you. Verses 14 and following is a fatherly warning. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. These things. I do not write these things. What does he mean by these things? Again, everything from chapter 1 so far, but in particular, these last few things with this biting sarcasm and this, this intensity. Uh, he's, he has used forceful sarcasm, and he has turned up the pressure quite high, but now he pulls back and he says, look, the only reason I'm doing this and writing like this is because I love you. I want the best for you. Paul is saying, I, I don't want to see you feel crushed and you know, you know, completely torn down. I want you to feel conviction and I want you to repent. And I'm doing this because I love you. And I want the best for you. So we see this father-children language. He says, even if you have countless other guides or countless other teachers who come into your life during different seasons of your life, You'll never have another spiritual father. And that's who Paul was then. Remember, he was the one that established the church in Corinth. So it was through his preaching, his proclamation of the gospel, that many of these people that would have been hearing the letter read came to Christ under. So he was their spiritual father. And he says, I'm going to leverage that unique relationship I have with you to admonish you. Admonish means to warn. To warn. And the warning is this, if you continue to hold on to worldliness, then you're not following Christ faithfully. Think about it. Verse 16, I urge you then be imitators of me. Just follow me to room 31. Just, just look at how I've lived my life, do that. Cut out worldliness. And to help these raw Christians in Corinth, Paul decided it was best to send Timothy. Timothy had been taught by Paul, who's a very capable teacher, 
We've got First and Second Timothy in the New Testament. Those are Paul's instructions, his pastoral instructions to Timothy. Timothy is a very capable teacher, teacher leader. He says, I'm going to send Timothy to help you walk in the way of Jesus. As I teach them everywhere in every church, Paul's saying, look, this is not unique. Some of these things, because it's an occasional letter, are addressing specific issues in Corinth. But, but this part about dropping worldliness and following Christ in faithfulness, this is the same for everybody, he says. This is not going to change from church to church. You, you're no different from any other church. As Jude 3 states, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The, the foundational stones that Paul and the other apostles laid down, that's never going to change. This is once and for all delivered to saints. This is, it's the same to all the churches. And then the very end, in verse 18 and following, he says, Some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you. So apparently some of the raw believers in Corinth were emboldened to, to act out their worldliness because they thought, well, Paul's not coming back. I don't have to worry about him. And Paul says, no, um, I will come back. And when I show up, I'm going to confront those who have been causing problems and, and ignoring this teaching. So he's not in any way afraid of, of confrontation because he knows he has truth on his side. And that's where we see that language about, you know, empty talk, power. Paul says, look, they're just, they're just wind. They're, they're all talk. All this posturing and, and boasting. He said, I've got spiritual truth on my side. And when I come and when I lay out spiritual truth, it's going to reveal and show all their boasting for what it is. That's not of Christ. So I have no problem showing up and, and going toe-to-toe with these guys. In verse 21, he ends the section and kind of begins the next with this ultimatum. He says, as my spiritual uh, father position grants me, I am going to come and you have a choice. I'm either going to come with a rod of discipline or I'm going to come as a gentle, loving father with encouragement and job well done language. But it's in your best interest to drop the worldliness right now. So, on one hand, this is a fatherly warning, it's, it's compassionate, it's tender, it's gentle. And on the other hand, he still is an apostle on direct commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if they're willing to disregard and disobey and disrespect Paul, they're actually disrespecting the one who sent Paul. Not a good idea. And that's the way he leaves it. Your choice. Pick one. Easier to show you. So if we had to, to summarize, and then this is it. He's going to move on after this. This is it on worldliness. But if we had to summarize this final installment of the worldliness teaching, we'd say this. The raw believers in Corinth need to repent of their pridefulness and their worldliness in light of the Lord's judgment and because it is not the way of Christ. Paul serves as an example of what it looks like to walk in the way of Christ and be rejected by the world. And he calls on the new believers at Corinth to imitate him. That's what this chapter is about. And we've spent a long time, several Sundays, on worldliness. So the application isn't going to come back and hammer away on the same things we've said over the past few weeks. I'm going to hit two application points that are very needed for, for the church today and are, are still very relevant to the text and I, I think will help the church. Number one, church leaders as servant stewards today. 
Somebody might read this and, and rightfully ask the question, well, yeah, that's great for Paul, he was an apostle, but what about today? I think that's a valid question. There are no apostles today. Let's make sure we understand that. No one has received uh, a direct commission from the resurrected Jesus Christ in which they're tasked to lay foundational stones for the early church and have been given the ability to perform signs and wonders to validate their message. No, there is nobody like that. There will not be anybody like that until Christ returns. So, no apostles. But we do have officers of the church that Jesus has put in place to oversee and manage his church. They're called elders and deacons. And this is why we saw earlier this morning during the worship service, we saw the deacons taking up the offering. That's one of the things that Jesus has assigned to those officers. They're in charge of, of collecting and distributing the, the, the monies and the finances of the church to, to those in the church. That's why you see elders serving communion in just a moment, leading the congregation in scripture reading and congregational prayer. That's their job. That's who Jesus has put in charge of those things. And that's why you saw an ordained minister um, presiding over baptism. That's the job. That's their thing. That's what Jesus has given them to do. Do we really just want anybody doing that? Do we, do we just want anybody standing up and saying, hey, I'll, I'll do that this Sunday. My turn. I don't think so. Not based on what scripture says. There was a there was a dad one time who decided that, that he thought it would be really nice to baptize his own children. And so he asked his pastor, and the pastor was not reformed or Presbyterian, the pastor said, sure, nothing wrong with that. He said, okay, well I also want to baptize him at home. He said, yeah, sure, nothing wrong with that. So that's what they did. The dad baptized his own children at home. Let's make sure we understand this correctly. Family worship, yes. Family worship, yes. Prayer, singing, teaching children, delighting in the commandments of the Lord, yes. Um, all those things. Modeling a faithful walk, yes. Praising God, yes. Family church, no. Uh, preaching, baptism, the Lord's Supper, taking vows, installations, none of those things have been given by Jesus to individual households and families to be practiced on their own. Those things have been given to his church. And by definition, they can only be rightly administered and practiced in his church by those whom he has assigned for those duties. So family worship, yes. Family church, no. Now I want to bring in some teaching from the confessions and from scripture. Let's go to the confessions first. And I've, I've got some Baptist brothers and sisters and said, who, who might say something like this. Um, well, that's just the confessions. That's not scripture. So I don't know about all that. I'm just going to go on scripture alone. Okay, hold on a second. First of all, confessions, we adhere to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. They're not scripture. They're not inerrant. But they are helpful summaries of biblical truth that have stood the test of time. And... We must be confessional. If someone says, no creed but Christ, that sounds good. That sounds pure and, you know, like back to the original church. But as soon as you say, what do you mean by Christ? Because we've got some cults out there who say they believe in Jesus, but they believe in Jesus very differently than we believe in. 
And as soon as you say, well, what I mean by Jesus is, stop, you're being confessional. If somebody says, no belief in the Bible, okay, well, we've got people that believe in 1st and 2nd Maccabees and the Gospel of Thomas, are they part of the Bible? You say, no, what I mean by the Bible is, and as soon as you say that, you're, con- you're confessional. So, so nobody can practically live without being confession- confessional. It's just which confession are you going to use? Well, this confession is post-reformational. It stood the test of time. It stood hundreds of years. It has been under scrutiny, microscopic scrutiny, by the, the collective church for centuries. And what remains is a helpful summary a confessional summary of biblical truth. So that's why it's helpful to turn to these confessions. Everybody's confessional. It's just a matter of which one we're using. Now let's go to Westminster Confession 27.4. It says, There be only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the Gospel, that is to say, baptism and the Lord's Supper, neither of which may be dispensed by any but a minister of the word lawfully ordained. A larger catechism, Q&A 156, is the word of God to be read by all. Although all are not permitted to read the word, public, word publicly to the congregation, yet all sorts of people are bound to read it in a part by themselves and with their families. Larger Catechism 158. By whom is the word of God to be preached? The word of God is to be preached only by such as are sufficiently gifted and also duly approved and called to that office. Now the reason the confessions say those things is because that's what scripture teaches. And we can start right here with the verse in 1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So the servant stewards in that verse includes apostles, but it also includes people that aren't apostles, doesn't it? Apollos is part of that us group, and he was not an apostle. He was a waterer. Paul was the planter, but Apollos was the waterer who came by, came by later. He was the pastor, teacher, leader of the church in much the same way that ministers are teacher leaders of the church today. We're not apostles, but we're still teacher leaders. So ministers of the word, lawfully ordained, are called by Christ to be servant stewards, <coughs> excuse me, and to provide the teaching and leadership of the church. So in that sense, they are still continuing to be stewards these servant stewards of the mysteries of God. Preaching, baptism, Lord's Supper. And in fact, when we turn to Scripture, we see that that when the Word of God is read and preached before the people of God assembled for worship, it is by someone who's been called and gifted and serves as a leader of the church, either priest, elder, apostle, teacher. So we see this both in the Old Testament and the New uh, for example, Moses commanded the priests to be the ones that read the law to the people in formal gatherings. Uh, we see that throughout Old Testament history. Um, for example, later on in Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8, 2 and 3, it says, So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. It's the same thing when we get to the New Testament. We see Peter proclaiming the sermon of Pentecost to, to, to the people. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he, meaning Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip saints for the work of the ministry. Let's be clear here. Jesus set up his church, and Jesus is the one who put these people in place to be responsible for stewarding baptism, preaching the word, all these things that are included in the mysteries of God. 
So it's not man's idea. That's the way Jesus set it up. In other words, why did Jesus give his church specific pastors and teachers if the church didn't need pastors and teachers? First uh, Timothy 4.13, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. It doesn't say, now make sure everyone takes a turn reading scripture during the worship service. It doesn't say that. It says, you, Timothy, as the teacher leader of the church, you're the one to be reading scripture publicly during a simple worship. Yourself, devote yourself to it. So, to conclude, family worship, yes. Family church, no. And although there are no more apostles today, Jesus has given his church elders and deacons, teacher leaders, to carry out the duties that God has assigned to them. And God is still looking for faithfulness from these servant stewards. So number one, church leader, teachers. Number two, God sent Jesus to show us the way. God sent Jesus to show us the way. You know, it's interesting that when we open these first few chapters of 1 Corinthians, we see Paul writing and writing and writing, and he's He's giving them all this teaching on how to get rid of worldliness. But at the end, in his closing remarks, he essentially comes out and says, all right, I'm just going to show you. I'm just going to lay out my life and show you what it looks like to follow Jesus and not be worldly. So he gave them this catalog of hardships. This is what it looks like when you follow Jesus and you don't hold on to worldliness. Likewise, long ago, and in many times, and in many ways, God spoke to his people by the prophets. He described who he was, who we are, in relation to him, and what God expects from us, and how to live. But in the fullness of time, he sent his son, Jesus. John 14, 8, says this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus also came and said, you know what? It's just easier if I show you. I'm just going to show you. He has shown us who God is, who we are, what it means to walk in right relationship with him. Jesus has not only shown us the Father, he has shown us the way to the Father, and the way is himself. Jesus is the way to the Father. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has shown us that if we want to come to him and approach him and be in a right relationship with him, it must be through faith in Christ. There's no other way that he has shown us. It's got to be through Jesus. There was a, a young man who was experiencing difficulties in life, and it seemed like things were just stacking up on top of each other, whether it be his relationship with his wife, or his kids, or work, or not work, or it, it just was becoming a little bit unmanageable, stressed out. And he was driving home from work one day and finally decided just to, to flick off the radio and he screamed, prayed to God and said, what do you want from me? I don't get it. I'm done. And then he blurted out, I surrender. I surrender. 
And that was the moment where things began to change for him because as he completely surrendered himself, Jesus Christ, through his spirit, was able to work in his life. And it didn't mean everything was perfect after that, but it meant that for the first time in his life, he had inner peace with God. All of a sudden, all those things, while still there to some degree, they weren't piling up. He could breathe easy in Christ. That's what God offers everyone. He says, if you turn to me in faith, if you repent of your sin and turn to me, if you surrender your life to me, God says, I will forgive you of your sin. You will have peace with God. So you never again have to wonder where you stand with God. You never have to, 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 to kind of put a blanket over that, that quiet voice in your mind that keeps popping up and says, you're not quite right with God yet. You know that. You, you can silence that voice forever and instead have peace with God. And it's not that everything goes away. Uh, I remember distinctly another young man I'm thinking of who his testimony to me was, when I came to Christ, my whole life fell apart. He said, Every, everything was terrible. He, in, fact, his, in fact, his wife divorced him after he came to Christ. She was an unbeliever. He said things were terrible, but later on, of course, he married a godly woman and was able to move on. But the way to God is Jesus Christ. And we need to understand the way that Jesus calls us to is the same way that Paul described when Paul says, follow me, I'll take you to room 31, and he says, look at this catalog of hardships, that's consistent with Jesus' calling and with Jesus' experience. Take a look at verse 9. God has exhibited us as apostles. Last of all, like men sentenced to death, Jesus was also sentenced to death. Jesus was also paraded through the streets of the city capital, Jerusalem. Jesus was also looked upon as an enemy of Rome. You are defeated. Your time is short. And people could look down their noses and say, it stinks to be you, as he carried his cross to the execution site. Foolish, weak, disrepute. Jesus was thought foolish to not to keep quiet. Why do you keep offending the Pharisees? Why do you keep causing waves? Why didn't you answer uh, a pilot with a more uh, you know, acceptable answer so he went easy on you? Why didn't you just go along? You fool, Jesus. They had your life in, in, in their hands. Why didn't you act appropriately? Weak. Jesus appeared weak, hanging on the cross. Dishonored. He was dishonored by those who hurled insults at him and spit upon him. Verse 11, we hunger and thirst. Jesus went 40 days without food. He was hungry. He knew what hungry felt like. Jesus literally said, I thirst. John 19, 28, hanging on the cross. I thirst. Poorly dressed, Jesus went naked to the cross. Buffeted, meaning hit with a fist. The soldiers and the Jewish leadership both hit and struck Jesus. Homeless, Jesus was an itinerant teacher. He owned no property. He didn't have a house to go home to at night. We labor, working with our own hands. Jesus was a carpenter before he began his public ministry at age 30. Is there any more occupation more associated with working with your hands than carpentry? Jesus blessed, endured, encouraged, all the while being treated like the scum of the world. And the world couldn't wait to scrape Jesus off its shoes. And they did. Very consistent. 
The way that Paul shows us and the way that Jesus shows us is the same. God sent his son, God sent Jesus, and said, here's the way. Through repentance and belief in Jesus, you're going to have forgiveness of sins and you're going to have a new eternal life. But the way of Jesus means rejecting worldliness. That's how Paul wraps it all up. You've got to cut that worldliness out of your life. The raw believers in the first century had to come to terms with that reality, and the church today must also come to terms with that reality. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown us the way, and that way is the person, Jesus Christ. Father, when we look at this catalog of hardships that both Paul and our Lord and Savior went through, and then we look in the mirror, we think, we've got it fairly easy. And although we may not be confronted with each and every one of those things on the list at, at any given time, Father, we know that we must always be prepared for whatever comes as we reject worldliness and follow the cross. So, Father, would you give us the ability to endure and to persevere? Would you allow us the ability to make up our minds right now that we are not going to, to go along with the world? We're, we're not going to allow worldliness to creep into our lives Father, give us the willingness and ability to, on an ongoing basis, fully surrender and follow the way of Jesus. Amen.